Good morning. For those of you who don't know already, the nursery is open, so if you have kids, you are welcome to take them there at this time. Just a couple other things uh, I want to say before we jump into reading of Scripture. Um, the equipping class that we're starting in a couple of weeks on May 9th, um, again, that's just an opportunity for us as your elders to equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry. So we will be starting that up. That's why we're starting that up. Uh, I'll be doing the first set, um, and we'll be talking about gospel life. What does gospel life look like? Which is essential. We never get beyond the gospel. Uh, and so we want to understand what does that mean? What does that mean? So we'll be starting that 9.15 on May 9th uh, in the fellowship hall downstairs. So we hope to uh, see you there. Thank you to the worship team this morning, the guys who filled in for with the ladies being gone. We hope to have you up there again. Um, it's a good time in worship this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 11. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 11. And because God speaks to us from the pages of Scripture, we stand in honor of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. We're going to talk today about the new covenant, and Paul references that here a little bit, so that's why we're reading it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters and stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the new covenant of which those of us who are in Christ in this room this morning are a part. Lord, we don't deserve it at all. We thank you that you've instituted it, Lord Christ, through your death and resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to change us and to cause us to walk in your ways. Lord, help us this morning to understand, again, as we come to looking at the scriptures in your plan from beginning to end, help us to comprehend it. And not just comprehend it, but to see your glory, your majesty, your purpose, and ascribe to you the worth and honor that is due to your name. And help us to live in light of the big picture. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do so on our own. 
I pray that this would be clear this morning. Spirit, give me strength. Help me to be clear for these people. And pray, Spirit, that you would impress this truth on all of our hearts. Help us to learn and to grow. May you be honored, Lord Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the third and final part of a series we've been going through over the last few weeks called Kingdom Through Covenant. Kingdom Through Covenant. And the reason, if you remember why we're doing this, is we're going to spend some time in Matthew here shortly. Uh, Next week, Steve will be talking about prayer. Uh, I will be visiting uh, Spokane for a week, but uh, Steve will be talking about prayer. And then the week after, we're going to jump into Matthew. And Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So to understand the kingdom, we better understand the kingdom backdrop, which is the storyline of Scripture. Really, the plot line of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is about the kingdom of God. We've been expressing it this way, and it's there in your notes and your bulletin, the big idea of the Bible. If you were to try to wrap your hands around what is God doing in Scripture, what is God telling us about in the pages of the Bible, it's this, that the triune God, Yahweh, establishes His kingdom over the whole world through His chosen King, in his covenants with humanity by subjugating his enemies through redemptive grace or eternal wrath for the purpose of his creation, glorifying him for all eternity. God is establishing a kingdom through a chosen king, through a chosen king, through a Messiah. That's what Messiah means, chosen one, a chosen king. How is he doing that? He's establishing it. He's building it through these covenants, these covenants that build off of one another like rungs on a ladder. Why is he doing it? He's saving people as he's building this kingdom, as he's establishing this kingdom. But why is he doing it? God does what he does for his glory. God does what he does for his glory. The Bible isn't ultimately about man's redemption. Did you know that? The Bible isn't ultimately about man's redemption. It's about God's glory. But that is good news because We are designed as image bearers to be satisfied in God's glory. And that's why we're going through these covenants, to to not only understand the story backdrop of the scriptures, the story backdrop of the kingdom going into Matthew, but also to behold God's glory, to behold his majesty, to behold his beauty, to behold his excellence, because that is what we are designed to see. And when we see it, we delight in it, we enjoy it, we revel in it. And we ascribe that worth back to God as we are designed to do. And so really one of the primary applications of this series is, one, understanding. We need to understand this, but not just understanding, but, but, but standing in awe, enjoying, marveling in who, the God who is, who's made this plan from beginning to end. And then as you see God's glory, as you delight in that, as you love him, then live your life in light of the big picture, living our lives in light of the big picture, getting on the right side of history, because this is where God is going in the world. So we've been talking about covenants. The first covenant is the Adamic covenant, the Adamic covenant, which gives the kingdom purpose, the kingdom purpose. You remember that God uh, chose a king initially in Adam, and Adam and Eve were to have a stewardship rule in God's, over God's world. They were to be image bearers to the world, uh, putting statues, image bearers of themselves through the world to show God's rule. And they were to have an intimate relationship with God in the likeness, a son and daughter relationship with God as likeness, his likeness. 
There are to be multiplying image bearers in that for God's glory. And we said that the sign of this covenant, if you were to name a sign, it's not explicit, but the best candidate is marriage. Marriage, because the intimate relationship that a man and a woman have in the covenant of marriage is supposed to picture the intimate relationship that God has with man in creation, the design of the kingdom originally. But we know there was a kingdom fall. There was a kingdom coup because Adam and Eve sought to be independent rulers apart from God. And so there was a curse. There was a brokenness to the kingdom. There was, man became a, a, a race of rebels rather than a race of image bearers. Where there's a promise, a key promise that drives the rest of Scripture in Genesis 3.15. The promise of a male offspring of the woman who would do what Adam was supposed to do to crush the head of the serpent and to rule over God's kingdom. And so we're looking, we're looking for this promise of the serpent crushing seed of the woman who will set things right, who will bring things back to the way they were supposed to be in Eden, that Edenic rest. Remember the seventh day of creation, everything is at rest, perfect harmony and peace. And we're looking for that one to not only restore mankind, but also to restore everything, the cosmos back to the way it's supposed to be. And then we have the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant, which gives stability for kingdom redemption, stability for kingdom redemption. Noah's name means rest, and there's a promise of him that through him there's going to be rest from the curse of the ground. There's a measure of rest in the flood because the flood uh, destroys most of humankind and its wickedness that is corrupting the earth. There's a measure of rest in that, but there's also a stability that's promised to Noah and his offspring, a stability in the created order, regular seasons, capital punishment to, to, to check human corruption. There's a measure of rest in the Noahic covenant pointing forward to the ultimate Edenic rest that God is reestablishing. The sign of this covenant is the rainbow, right? God took out his war bow in the waters of judgment in the flood, and he hung it up as a rainbow in the clouds to remind us that until his promise is established, he will never destroy the earth by the waters of the flood. And then after that, God calls Abraham. We entered the Abrahamic covenant. We said last week that the Abrahamic covenant promises what happened essentially on uh, D-Day. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is kind of D-Day for the kingdom program because you remember D-Day that, that there was the need to establish a beachhead on the beaches of Normandy to retake Europe. Well, in a similar sort of way, there is a need for God to establish a kingdom, a nation, the people of Israel, the people characterized by the, the, the covenant that's characterized by land, seed, and blessing that provides a kingdom through which all the clans of the ground, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through this people group, blessed with a return to Edenic rest. So that's the Abrahamic covenant, the kingdom beachhead of land, seed, and blessing for the reestablishment of Yahweh's kingdom over the whole world. The sign of that covenant was male circumcision, marking out Abraham's offspring with a particular role as this kingdom beachhead to bless all the nations of the world. In that covenant, the fate of the world, the fate of the nations, was welded to the fate of Abraham's offspring, the fate of what will become the nation of Israel. And then we talked about the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, we said last week, it administers kingdom blessings. It administers kingdom blessings. The idea is, is that the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant are land, seed, and blessing. How are the Israelites to receive that? Well, they're to receive that by obeying what we call the law 
or the Israelite covenant, or the Mosaic covenant. You see, as they obey the law, God would bless them with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. To what end? Well, in this covenant, in this Mosaic covenant, in this Israelite covenant, God is making the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? They mediate between God and man. Well, Israel as a nation is to mediate the knowledge of the one true God, the creator God, to all the nations of the world. And so as they would be blessed with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the world would look and say, hey, what's going on in Israel? And would come and see and come to the knowledge of the one true God. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath, the Sabbath. You remember the Sabbath points back to the, the, the Edenic rest that happened on the seventh day of creation because it ties Israel with the creator God and points to the fact that through Israel, there will be a return to Edenic rest. So that's the story so far. That's all the groundwork that's been laid. Genesis through Deuteronomy establishes that foundation. The next covenant we look at is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant, in terms of the kingdom, we might say it this way, it establishes the king's house, the king's house. And now I'm using intentional language there, there's going to be a pun. You'll see how it shows up in the scriptures itself here in a second. But it's the king's house. Now, coming out of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel is on the whole obedient. They're on the whole obedient. They follow Joshua. They enter the promised land, right? They're retaking the promised land. They're conquering. They're, God's giving them the land promised to the the, the patriarchs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because in large measure, they're being obedient to the covenant. And so by the end of Joshua, they've taken a large swath of the land that's promised to them. Not all of it, not all of the boundaries yet, but a large swath of the land promised to Abraham because they have been obedient to the Abrahamic covenant, as Joshua has been a faithful leader in uh, bringing them into the land. And then we hit the book of Judges. Book of Judges. And things unravel really, really quickly. Because Joshua's generation dies, and the next generation is not faithful to the, the Israelite covenant. They're not faithful to the law. And so what happens when they're not faithful to the law, you remember how this works, right? If the law is the administrative, uh, administrates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, if you disobey, then you get the exact opposite. You get oppressed by your enemies. You get uh, a spit out of the land that God has given you. And so those curses God brings in measure upon Israel. And then they, they realize this, and then they cry out to God and say, God, save us, deliver us. And God sends a deliverer. He sends a judge. And God rescues them. And then for a time, Israel does okay. And then the cycle starts all over. They depart. They go after other gods. They, they disobey the law. And then they cry out. And then it, we get this cycle over and over again. It's not just a cycle, though. It's a spiral. It's a spiral. It's a spiral down and down and down and down. If you read the book of Judges, it, is a, it, it gets nasty by the end. It is one of the darkest books in the Bible. And the purpose for that is to show that God is true to his word. If, if you disobey his word, if you disobey his law, Israel, then he's going to bring the curses of the covenant on you. And yet what's interesting is that by the end, by the end of Judges, we get this refrain. We get this refrain mentioned several times. The author of Judges pegs the problem 
on this, the very last verse of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author of Judges pegs the problem on the lack of a king, which is very, very interesting, isn't it? Of course, Israel's got its sin problems, but what the author of Judges says is that the problem here is you don't have a leader, Israel. Now, we know already, as we've been going through the storyline, there is the promise of a king. There's been a promise of the king from the beginning. Adam was to be a king, and he failed, right? And yet there's a promise of a, another Adam who's going to succeed, another king who's going to succeed where he failed. We know that king is going to come through Abraham's line, Isaac's line, Jacob's line, and Judah's line. You remember, we read this last week, Genesis 49, 8 through 12, promises the kingdom will come from Judah, and uh, not just a kingdom over uh, Israel, but a kingdom over the whole world. And even in the law, even in Deuteronomy 17, go ahead and turn over there if you want to, follow along. Deuteronomy 17, in the law itself, there was a provision for a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold." And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and the children in Israel. You see, God's had a plan for a king from the beginning. But not just any king, a king who loves God's law. A king who is obedient to that law. And what happens after the judges, we enter Samuel. We enter Samuel, and Israel indeed wants a king, but it doesn't want the Deuteronomy 17 kind of king. It wants a king like the nation's. It wants, one, uh, it wants a domineering king, one who will lead its armies to victory. It wants a king like all the nations, the way the nations conceive of kingship. That's not God's plan for the kingdom. He wants a king who loves God's law. And so God gives them exactly what they asked for. He gives them a king like the nations. He gives them Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Now we know there's a problem because this one's coming from Benjamin and not from Judah, and we see God's rejection of Saul, Saul ultimately and the establishment of his chosen king. It's always about God's chosen king, and who is God's chosen king? David. David. And it takes a time from the initial promise of the kingdom to David 
to the establishment of it. But once God establishes David's kingdom over Israel and Judah, and once he brings the ark to Jerusalem, an amazing, amazing thing happens in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. We get the king, the king to solve the problem of judges. 2 Samuel 7 is one of those key texts in the Bible that helps us understand the storyline, and it's where the Davidic covenant is established. I'm going to read at length 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But that same night the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now what's going on here? David asked to build God a house, a temple. He wants to build a temple for the ark. And God says, and God himself has a divinely inspired pun here. He says, uh, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And what does he mean by house for David? He means a dynasty. He means a dynasty for David, an everlasting dynasty. And we know based on the storyline up to this point, when he, talks about, uh, when he talks about David's offspring reigning over this kingdom forever, he's to be equated with the offspring, the serpent-crushing seed, the serpent-crushing offspring of the woman who is to come through Abraham's line, Isaac's line, Jacob's line, Judah's line, and now Judah's son, David's line. The king, the ultimate king, will come from this line. 
And this king will have an everlasting kingdom, and he will be a temple builder. He will be a temple builder. And what's, how does this solve the problem of judges? Well, here's how it solves the problem of judges. You can see it here. The Davidic king is called God's son. Do you remember in Exodus, Exodus, God calls Israel his son. Do you remember back at the beginning in creation, God talks about creating man in his likeness. That's the, the relationship of sonship. And the idea of sonship here, the way the kingdom works, is the king embodies in himself the people. We, the fancy language is solidarity. The king has solidarity with his people. He embodies the whole nation in a person. The king is also held accountable to God's law, just as the nation is held accountable to God's law. The idea is if the king obeys, if the king obeys the law, then he leads his people in obedience to the law. Just like Israel, the fate of Israel, the fate of the nations is welded to Israel, the fate of Israel is welded to the fate of the king. You see how this works, right? As the king obeys, he's going to lead his people in obedience to the law. But if the people, if all Israel's obeying the law, then they receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and they attract the nations of the world to bring knowledge of the one true God and to reestablish Edenic rest. You see how this works. So everything is now hanging on this king. Everything is hanging on this king. If the king obeys, if the king obeys, then everything works. Everything is reestablished back to the original kingdom program and better promised in the garden. The Davidic covenant provides an everlasting, earthwide kingdom for David's offspring who will build God's temple and lead Israel in obedience to the standard of the Israelite, the Mosaic covenant. What's the sign of this covenant? I would argue that it's the temple. The temple. The temple itself is the sign of this covenant. Now, David's son, immediate son, Solomon, he builds a temple. He builds a temple. And after he builds that temple, God appears to him in 1 Kings 9. 1 Kings 9, and he says this, 1 Kings 9, 3. And Yahweh said to him, so he's talking to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And you, and as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, the statutes and rules of the Israelite covenant, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and hiss. And they will say, why has Yahweh done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned Yahweh their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt 
and laid hold on other gods and worshipped and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this disaster on them. Everything's riding on the king. The king obeys. Israel obeys. God has put his temple in their midst. This is how this is supposed to work. Now, we actually begin to see it starting to work. If you were to look through 1 Kings 2 through 10, you would see Solomon's reign, and Solomon's reign is glorious. Everyone in general is being obedient at a certain level to the law. And what is God doing for the nation? He's super blessing them. He's bringing in all sorts of wealth, and they have the boundaries of the land almost to the extent that God has promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. And there's just this super amount of blessing. It's described in Edenic language. Solomon's reign is described in Edenic language because it's pointing back. Hey, we're almost there. We're almost back to the way that things should be. And the nations show up. Do you remember the visit of the Queen of Sheba? From the, this far off nation coming and saying, hey, what's going on in Israel? And so the purposes seem to be lining up. Everything seems to be working. And then it doesn't. And then it doesn't. Because here's the problem. Though the king... Leads, is supposed to lead the nation of Israel in obedience. Israel and the king have the same fundamental problem. A problem that God himself had, that Moses and God them, had highlighted in the law itself. Turn back to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. In the midst of establishing the law, God says this, God says this through Moses, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now you remember circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? Every, uh, every male offspring of an Israelite was supposed to be circumcised. Why? Because it's supposed to set them apart as a nation to say that this is my chosen people of God. But the problem was it was merely an external sign. You could be part of the nation of Israel. You could be part of God's chosen nation without knowing God without having your heart circumcised. You could be God's people externally, but not be God's people internally. So God pegs this problem, and he even says at the very end of Deuteronomy, he, he essentially says at the end of Deuteronomy, look, uh, you guys are going to disobey, uh, and all these blessings and curses that I've spoken of, they're going to come upon you. Well, what's going to happen? Deuteronomy 30 30 says, he, he pegs this same problem. He says, after all that happens, you guys are going to repent. And verse 6 in Deuteronomy 30 says this, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. You remember how the law is supposed to work, don't you? The law never earned your relationship with God. It was supposed to be a response, the loving response to God's rescue and salvation for you. And what he's saying is, you guys don't have a circumcised heart. You can't, you can't love me, so you can't obey. And But after all these curses come upon you, God will circumcise your heart. In other words, you will be not merely God's people externally, but you will be God's people 
internally, which sets the stage for what we call the new covenant. The new covenant. And how does the new covenant relate to the kingdom? The new covenant gives the kingdom heart and spirit. The kingdom heart and spirit. David's not the chosen king. He fails. He murders Uriah and commits adultery with Bathsheba. And God says, there's a curse on your house. The sword won't depart from your house because of what you've done. Solomon's not the chosen king. The offspring of David and Bathsheba is not the king because he, go, he goes after many horses, many wives, and much gold, right? The very three things that Deuteronomy 17 said, don't do, Solomon does with a vengeance. He's not the chosen king. And in fact, as you walk through the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you watch the line of the Davidic kings. And some of them have a circumcised heart. Some of them have a heart to obey God. Some of them walk after the standard of David. And then, but most of them don't. And so this is the double-edged sword of the Davidic covenant. If the king's obedient, everything's wonderful and great. God blesses the nation. He establishes them. He gives them the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. But if they are disobedient, if the kings themselves are disobedient, if the kings themselves are idolatrous, then it's Judges part two. And that's exactly what first and second kings are, Judges part two. Because you see a spiral down and down and down. The kingdom is split between northern and southern. The and the northern kingdom's taken into exile. Exile is the ultimate curse. You're out of the land that God promised to Abraham. And then Judah with the Babylonian exile. And it's all because of this heart problem. And right before the nations are entering exile, they're going away to Babylon. But right before that happens is where we get more information about the new covenant. Those pieces, the pieces of the new covenant are found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So I'm going to take you to those three. Isaiah is about a hundred years before God takes the nations into exile. And what it's said in the latter chapters of Isaiah is it essentially says, yep, you're going away to exile. There's no return at this point. And yet there's a promise. There's a promise that God will fix the sin issue that Israel has. God will fix the sin issue that Israel has. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. One says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you, the you is the servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, the servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, 
nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they bring, spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah speaks in earlier chapters of the Davidic king, and the servant and the Davidic king are to be equated later in Isaiah. And what, what Isaiah is saying is God's going to deliver not only Israel, but the nations through this Davidic king. The ultimate Davidic king promised by the Davidic covenant, he's going to rescue the nations. He's going to embody a covenant He's going to embody a covenant. How is he going to do that? Well, not only is it later said that this king will completely keep the law, which has been the problem all along, but not only that, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, the passage of the suffering servant, the one we read when we talk about Good Friday, is that this ultimate Davidic king, this servant will atone for the sins of his people. He will atone for the the, the sins that have led Israel to exile, he will atone for those. And so this Davidic king is going to guarantee the promises of this covenant. Isaiah 55, after the servant makes atonement, there's a call, come to this one, come to this Davidic king, come to him, he's the one that embodies the covenant, repent and entrust yourself to him because he is the one who has dealt with the sin issue that kept Israel in exile. So we get a piece of the picture in Isaiah. We get another piece in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is the go-to text for the new covenant. If you had one text to go to to understand the new covenant, it would be here. And again, Jeremiah is even closer to exile. He's right on the cusp. Jeremiah sees the exile, the, the thing that heart circumcision, that Israel hasn't been heart circumcised, and so they're going into exile. And then right as he goes into exile, we get this promise. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What's Jeremiah saying? Jeremiah is saying, the problem with the old covenant was not the covenant itself, the problem was you guys broke it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a new covenant with you that you cannot break. That you cannot break. Because not only am I going to deal with your iniquity, I'm going to deal with your sin. We just saw that in Isaiah where we've got the, the ultimate Davidic king suffering in atonement for the sins of his people. So I can atone for your sins. But now not just a portion of Israel is going to know God. Remember, you can, you can be part of Israel but not know God. That's not true of this covenant. Everyone in the covenant knows God. 
Everyone in the covenant has a relationship with God. And not only that, but the law, the standard that God's been measuring the kings and the people by, it's not going to be external. It's going to be internal. You're going to want to obey. Your whole heart is going to be changed. You will obey my law because I'm going to change your heart and put that in you. How's that going to happen? Ezekiel Ezekiel gives another piece of the picture. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. 20, 25. We'll start in 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see the language there. There's cleansing from sin. There's a new heart given in the new covenant. And there's the law written on the heart by what? By the Holy Spirit, who's now not going to just be external. He's going to be internal, dwelling within to cause obedience. Which sets us up for the New Testament. Did you know that the New Testament, we get that language from the Latin translation of the Bible, an old one that says, novum testamentum. But testamentum is just a Latin word for covenant. When we come to the New Testament, we're really coming to the new covenant. That's what that language means. And we are introduced to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king of the line of David. He's showing that. He's, he's, the, he's, he's both God and man. He's the ultimate son of David, and he's the son of God. He's God the Son in human flesh. He's the one who perfectly obeys the law. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. And the Gospels show us that through his death, resurrection, and ascension, established the new covenant. He kick-started the new covenant by means of his own death. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians I want to prove this to you. 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isaiah's suffering servant is Jesus And Jesus made atonement on the cross for his people, not just from Israel, but for all the nations. And the call has gone out not just for Israel, but for all the nations to repent and entrust themselves to the new covenant mediator who is Jesus Christ. 
And the amazing thing is, is not only has Jesus' death purchased atonement, forgiveness of sin, but Galatians 3.13 through 14 says he took the curse of God's wrath upon himself, the covenant curse of God's wrath on himself, and he purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you come to Christ, who is the new covenant mediator, you are united with him, and he gives his Holy Spirit to live inside you to cause you to obey. Christ doesn't just save you from the punishment of God's wrath. He purifies you through his spirit to cause you to be obedient. That's why if there's no fruit in your life, there's no obedience. You're not in Christ. You don't know him because it's the spirit that causes us to walk in obedience. And here's the other amazing reality. You remember the temple? The temple's the sign of the Davidic covenant. Jesus, John says that when Jesus came and God and man, incarnate in man, he tabernacled with us. He is the embodiment of the temple. But then he ascended. Where's the temple now? The temple's here in his church, his people. He's building his temple. He's building his church. That's why church is so important. That's why when we gather here, it's so important because what we are saying when we gather is that Jesus is king. He is the king who will crush all other kingdoms and will reign over this world forever. And he will will be a good king, a king who has perfect justice, perfect righteousness. It will be perfect abundance, perfect peace in his kingdom. When we gather here, that is what we are saying. We are part of the sign even of the Davidic covenant. But here's the reality. Even though the new covenant has started, it is not finished yet. Because did you notice in Jeremiah 31, 31, who is the covenant initially made with? Israel and Judah. First and foremost, the new covenant is made with the nation of Israel. Because remember, what does the Abrahamic covenant do? It welds the fate of the nations with the fate of Israel. And the fact of the matter is, Israel rejected its Messiah. So what are we waiting for? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 11. Paul tells us in Romans 11. He says this, 11.25, Romans 11.25 Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, that's us, has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The new covenant promises for a future generation of Israel to all know the Lord. And that has never happened. But it will. It will. There will come a day when all Israel turns to its Messiah. They mourn over him and they receive him. And friends, when this happens, catch this. 
the ultimate Davidic king of the Davidic covenant, will lead all Israel in obedience to the standard of the Israelite covenant, the law, by their heart circumcision through the new covenant, so that Israel might receive all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant through the stability and rest provided for in the Noahic covenant, restoring Edenic rest and the ruling of image bearers of the Adamic covenant to all the families of the earth. And that's exactly what Revelation talks about. The saving of Israel, and then in the end, the ruling of image bearers over the new heavens and the new earth under the reign of Christ. That's how the story ends. That's how it works. And God is pursuing his kingdom through his covenants. So just to summarize, the new covenant provides for every member, including a future generation of all ethnic Israel, to know Yahweh intimately through the forgiveness of sins provided through the atonement of the Messiah, and to have Yahweh's instruction, his law, written on the heart by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit, so that all members are caused to walk in obedience. And that is extended not only to Israel, but to the nations. And you'd better be asking yourself, how do you enter the new covenant? How do you enter the new covenant? Well, we've said it. Entrance is through union with the Messiah. Just as you're in Adam, you, everyone's naturally born in Adam. They have a covenantal union with Adam. You need a covenantal union with the Messiah. How does that happen? Through faith and repentance, friends. You repent from your sins. You turn from your sins. You entrust yourself to the work of Christ you come to him. You, you don't come, you cannot have the benefits of the covenant without Christ himself. You need Christ. You need to know Christ and to have him as your Lord and your master by faith alone, produced by the regeneration of the Spirit. And then what happens when you enter that covenant? You are forgiven and you are baptized by the Spirit. And then you picture that baptism by the Spirit through the waters of baptism, and you are showing that you have been brought into the new covenant. What's the sign of the new covenant? Well, it should be obvious from what we read in 1 Corinthians. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Next Sunday is the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as you do that, you should remember what we are doing and partaking in the Lord's Supper is not, a, it's not just tradition, it's not just something we do. It's not even just obedience, although it is that. It is picturing the fact that we have covenant union with Christ. And since we have covenant union with Christ, we have covenant union with each other. The Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant. That is kingdom through covenant, my friends. What do you do with this? What do you do with this? Well, first, what we've been saying all along, you need to just stand in awe. This is God's plan, and it is coherent. It is coherent from Genesis to Revelation, which means the Bible is not just the product of men, but God spoke through men. It is God's word to us. But not only that, if you have not done so, you need to swear allegiance to the ultimate Davidic king. He is the one who will reign over all things. He he will judge those who live and have died. 
And only those who are called by his name, only those who have union with him will be forgiven and enjoy him. It's not just the benefits of the covenant, but it's enjoying him for all eternity. And then here's the reality as being Christians, right? We fight, we fight with sin day in and day out, right? We, we battle against sin, but we can remember I am, I am saved, I am clean, I am forgiven through the, the blood of Christ. And not only so, but I have the power to overcome sin in my life. Why? Because I've been given the Holy Spirit. So I plan, I work, I labor hard and fight against my sin, but I always do praying to the Spirit. Spirit, give me strength. Give me ability to kill sin and to follow my King whom I love, who has brought me into the, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And what's our job now, right? Where are we at in all of this? We're, we're waiting. We're waiting for Christ's return, but we have a commission. Romans 11 talked about it. We have a great commission to, to call all nations to be disciples, to enter the new covenant, to, to know this Davidic king. Why? Because through that, the nation of Israel will be brought to jealousy and will come to know the Messiah. And then the whole kingdom through covenant complex, will come together to the end. That's what we're waiting for. So we pursue hard the Great Commission because we long for the rest, the Edenic rest. God is coming. Where God will, well, where the whole triune God will dwell with his people at the just at the beginning, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwelling with his people as they reign over a new heavens and a new earth under the reign of Christ. That is where the scriptures are going. Let's praise our great God now in prayer. Lord God, our, 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 our language is inadequate. Our songs are inadequate. Our desires are inadequate. Lord, we are inadequate people. We are not sufficient in ourselves for anything. But we thank you for what your plan is. We thank you for what you've done in the world. We thank you for what you've done through your covenants. We thank you for bringing us into the new covenant through your son. Jesus, we thank you for being the atonement for our sin. We thank you that we have you as our covenant mediator, that we're in union with you. We thank you, Spirit, that you dwell within us to cause us to obey, help us to obey, help us to know your law and to obey your law, to obey your commandments, Lord Jesus. Help us to pursue the Great Commission, and please, we would ask even now that you would grant repentance to your nation, Israel, so that you might come, Lord Jesus, your kingdom might come, that you might reign over the whole earth, and that we might see the Edenic rest that you have promised. We look forward to that. We hope in that. Grant us perseverance. Grant us trust in clinging to you, Lord Jesus, our covenant head. Lord, we thank you for this time. Impress these truths in our hearts. Help us them not to become old, but to, for us to live our lives by them. And I pray that if there are any here who do not know you, that they would be brought into the covenant this day through repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.